This is a sermon on silence. So it almost feels wrong to use words. I thought about filling our time with images this morning, like this lady, or Those of you who read music know you could play that song all day (laughs) and all night. It is interesting when we began with John 15 last week that through the entire chapter of John 15, most of chapter 14 and 16, the disciples have a posture of silence. And when we are are silent, it means when our mouth is closed, our ears work a little better. So here are the disciples. No one's asking questions or clar- for clarification. No one argues with an alternative viewpoint. No one asks to be dismissed. No one is rushing Jesus away to the next appointment. No one is asking, you know, can I go now, Jesus? I'm kind of done. I need to get on with something. The disciples are silent. Can you imagine if while Jesus is teaching, the cell phone goes off, the pager goes off, people start texting each other back and forth? Could you imagine that? Can you imagine airplanes going by and cars passing by and, and Jesus keeps teaching? Can you imagine you know, family members come in with backpacks and groceries and set them down and CNN is in the background and Jesus just keeps talking? James and John have their laptops open looking for the closest Wi-Fi. Jesus teaches. Andrew and Peter have their calendars out. Tomorrow, can we squeeze a few more things in? Does that make any sense? No, the disciples are silent. And when the disciples are silent, their ears work better. I will speak now for about 20 minutes, but I probably won't say it any clearer than the last sentence. John chapter 15, if you weren't here last week, and we want to just briefly tell you where we began the conversation that will take us all the way through Easter, Resurrection Sabbath. John chapter 15, the vine and the branches, it happens to be the biblical foundation of our church's mission statement. First and foremost, the people of God are called to abide. And we said, here's some assumptions we said about the first eight verses of John 15. The vine and the branches metaphor is primarily an identity metaphor. It tells us who we are and to whom we are connected, and it keeps calling us back to that when the world pulls us away. We sang the words earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. This is an identity metaphor, the vine and the branches. That's one assumption. Another assumption is it's to the inside circle. Jesus isn't speaking to people on a hillside. It's not in the marketplace. These are disciples. They're the inside guys. They've already chosen to walk a pathway with this God, and it's a farewell conversation, a farewell speech. Jesus is saying, I really am leaving. I really have taught you what you need to know. You're going to have to know how to do this without me in your presence. By the way, it's getting ugly out there, which is why in the chapter of John, it's recorded, press in and love one another. It's an inside conversation and a farewell speech to the disciples. That's another assumption of our passage Another 
is that I believe this is not a salvation or a judgment passage. And by that I mean, in verse 2 and verse 6, if you have your Bible open, we won't put this up on the screen today, but I said that sometimes in the Christian tradition, we have uh, argued over verse 2 and 6, what does it mean when the pruning and the cutting off happens? What does it mean when the cleaning up takes place? And I am arguing for, and will have a hard time being persuaded to read this text any other way. In verse 2, when it says you are cut off, a nicer way to translate that and more accurate would be when you are lifted up and tied, like a branch in the springtime who's not going to produce fruit until next season, I will prune you, which is then to trim those things that are not really necessary that will take away from abundant fruit crop. And down in verse 6, when it says uh, those that have not been fruitful that have fallen away will be swept up in a fire, I'm saying that is not a judgment passage. This is not what happens to, to those of us who aren't fruitful. Rather, that's just what happens at the end of harvest when what's finished producing sort of shrivels up and next year's crop begins. We cannot read this as a judgment passage. It says the disciples are clean, and that's salvation. And for that, we should all say something. However, my colleagues let me know that I didn't make this very clear last Sabbath. I'm very glad for these friends. I'm glad to have colleagues who listen to a sermon, first of all. But then to have conversation. What I didn't make clear was I said, this is optional. And the guys asked me, really, can you say this is optional? If you're a disciple, can you say pruning is optional? And and I say it's optional only on this salvation judgment basis. If I choose not to let God prune me, it's going to be a hard life. But if I choose to let him prune me, it's not going to save me. That's what I meant when I said it's optional. But of course we know disciples make a choice, they follow a path, so, so I have to be careful about how I use the optional language, and I agree. And finally, what we said, God holds the pruning shears, and that is not easy for a congregation like this. Most of the week, you all hold the pruning shears. Where you work and in what you do, you are the ones trimming and grooming and taking charge and producing and making things happen. Not easy to put the shears down. God is responsible for the pruning process. We won't go back and revisit this every week, but I want you to know where we came from as we move ahead in the conversation. The first part of the passage, remain in me, stay in me, stay connected to me, abide in me, the language over and over, clearly the most frequently used word in the passage, this abide word. This morning we're thinking about silence and a practice of silent, and leading quieter lives, and developing our listening. We're thinking about that as one of the ways we abide, and we stay connected to God. We immediately have objections to the practice of silence in today's world. Some of them are quite practical. We just really don't know what to do. What are the rules? What am I supposed to do? How does one go about this? Must I go away somewhere and check in? to have a practice of silence. And sometimes we protest because, come on, is this a joke? I have two kids, two and a half jobs, I have this life. I wouldn't know silence if it screamed in my face. Or we object because the children are gone or a spouse has died and we live in silence all week long and we really don't need any more silence. We need activity and noise. We're lonely. Which is why some of us go to sleep with the television on or the radio running because we don't like the silence we didn't ask for. 
So sometimes we protest the idea of learning about silence. Other objections, how do you do silence in such a loud world we live in? How do you do silence in a world full of words? Could I preach a sermon without using any words? Yeah, you've already answered. I've I've heard you. Yes, you could. How do you do silence in a word world? How do you get comfortable not feeling the need to fill silence up with something? We were in a prayer group this week with the clergy gathered in the Ukaipa Valley, about 25 of us from all different denominations, and it came time to pray at the end. And the person leading the prayer said, I wrote it down, when, silence, when the silence seems like it's gone on too long here, I will close the prayer. What, whatever that is, when the silence has gone too long, when we've gotten uncomfortable is what that means. We don't do silence so well. We object. We object as Adventist Christians that an idle mind is dangerous. You've heard this, haven't you? That if we completely sit in silence and solitude and quiet, we're inviting evil to come in because we must fix our mind on God at all times. And I want to say to you, I think that's a little strange. Think of all the rest of the times during your week where you trust your mind and your creativity. Think of how we trust our intellect, for example. And is it because we are busy producing and doing and achieving and accomplishing that we're okay while we're busy and we think when we sit still, we'll let the devil creep in? I would say a mind and body in solitude consecrated by God is a thousand times safer than the busy body of an intellect not paying attention to Jesus. So we object. We want to make sure our mind is safe and it's stayed on Jesus. We object because we live in a pluralistic world and we're not sure about these other world religions and really is this letting other kinds of meditation into our Christian life and experience. We worry that when we sit in silence, what we're really doing is emptying self. We get confused that we're somehow trying to empty and dismiss ourselves and merge in with some other higher power or, or come to some status where we don't really exist at all, some other level of reality We've confused, then, the fact that Christian silence, the practice of Christian silence, means we specifically bring our unique self and all of our stuff with us. We don't leave it behind. And then we invite God into that with us and say, now transform Christ, transform me to be more Christ-like. That's the distinction, an important distinction between the kinds of silence. We object because we say we're busy and then we stay busy and in our busyness, then we really never have to go to a place where we aren't in control. We never have to close our mouths and allow God to silence our internal dialogue, our self-talk. We never get the chance to say, as one person said when he entered his silent time, I hereby resign as the CEO of anything. I lay it all down. I am not a father. I am not a businessman. I am not a spouse. I am not responsible to the Rotary Club. I am a listening child of God. If we choose to stay busy, we never have to say that. These are some of our objections. You know... In honor of the Chinese New Year, I was thinking about 
these chopsticks. My entire family knows how to use chopsticks, but I don't. And I'm feeling rather like a misfit. And since the Chinese New Year began, beginning of the week, I guess Kirby's traveled to Japan several times. He's taken the girls with him, and he's traveled to China, and they're all experts, but I am not. But I walked through the store and found this thing this week. Looks like a little Pillsbury Doughboy. And because I was raised here and because Pastor Isaac told me I haven't been eaten in the right Chinese restaurants, I don't even know about these things. His name is Fred. And I didn't know I could have had a girl if I wanted. But I bought Fred, so he holds your chopsticks together so now I can learn how to eat with them. I think it's absolutely smart and smashing. It was the box that got my attention, though. Walking through the store the other day, it was the words on the box that got my attention. The box said this, having trouble taming your chopsticks. You're not alone. You could practice for a few more years, or you can just call for help. This soft, washable hinge will help your chopsticks stay in line. And if using chopsticks is important to you, you'll want this help. Now, my daughters won't be seen with me, so if anybody's up for Chinese tonight, let's do it. If the line was, you could practice a few more years, or you could just call for help. A spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline is calling for help. That's one way we could think about it. Be still and know, Psalms 46, we say it and we read it, and we read it and we say it, and we rarely experience it. We could read Thomas Merton, Thomas Kemp, we can read Annie Dillard, Henry Nouwen, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Richard Foster, we can read any specialist on this topic of silence or the spiritual disciplines, but none of them say it any much different It all is fairly similar to these lines from Ellen White, Ministry of Healing. Page 58. When every other voice is hushed, and in quietness we wait before him, the silence of the soul makes more distinct the voice of God. It is the voice of God we get to hear when every other voice is silent. When we were in academy, people used to walk through the band room, I remember, on the way to the gym, and for no reason would just pick up the cymbals and clang them and hit all the percussion instruments just for the sake of making noise on the way to the gym. You can't hear anything else when the percussion set's all going, and, and Ellen White says, really, that is what your life is like, and until all of that is silent, it will be difficult to hear the distinct voice of God. So disciples would have to choose a space for solitude. And that isn't always so comfortable. I think it's because as Adventist Christians, we're really not sure what to do with that space. And we wonder if we'll do it wrong. When we worked at the youth camp in Oregon Conference as teenagers, I was 17 years old and it was staff orientation weekend and it was Sabbath, day two of orientation. Sabbath afternoon, the camp director called us all together, told us to all go to our cabins and get our Bibles and meet him back there. So we did. And then at that point, he told each one of us, take your watch off and surrender it in the basket. And so we all did. He said, these are your instructions. 
You're now to go out, take your Bible, and go outside. Do not go into a building. Don't go with anyone else. Don't talk to anyone else. You know, teenagers, you've got to give them a list like this, right? Don't speak to anybody else. Don't go inside a building. Stay outside. Don't you even talk. Just go somewhere and sit and be with God. When we come back together, we'll share what insights you might have gathered. When I ring the bell, you'll know it's time to come back in. Everyone gather back here in the lodge and we'll spend time together and have an agape feast. And, and I was absolutely terrified. Oh, my word, what do you do now? So everyone began to scatter, and because I didn't want to look foolish, I walked off confidently like I knew right where I was headed. And I went to the back of my cabin number 16 and sat on the steps. Didn't go inside. That'd be against the rules. I sat there and thought, well, well, what am I supposed to be hearing? Well, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Well, what if nothing comes to me and he calls on me when it's the sharing time and I have a big fat zero to share? And then I thought, I'll, I'll walk a little ways. Not familiar with the camp, but I'll, if I go around the lake... Shouldn't be too hard. I'll just turn around and come back. I really can't get too lost, can I? So I began walking around the lake, and that's when I learned there's a reason they call it Big Lake. So I sat down, and I began to listen, because now I was worried that I would miss the bell, the sound of the bell. What if I don't hear it? Is it a high bell or a low bell? Well, I've never even heard the bell rung at this camp yet. How does he expect me to know when the bell's ringing? All of that is good. This is such a vivid memory for me. I'm going to miss the bell. And it felt like tomorrow, and I was sure everyone had been called back, and I'm sitting out by the lake all alone. But then, in my silence, I heard the bell. So I ran back, I ran back to the lodge and ran inside, stood in front of the fire pit, stood in front of our director and our friend B.J. Christensen, and here I am, and he's popping grapes into his mouth, and he said, what are you doing here? I said, you rang the bell. He said, I did not. I said, I heard it, I'm sure you rang. We did not ring the bell, now get back out there going to send me back where I came from. Get out. When you hear the bell, it's time to come. I did not imagine that bell. Did I imagine that bell? I got absolutely zero out of that quiet time because I'm not sure we know what to do with it. Now, if you can relate to that, let me tell you about a physician, a psychologist who can also relate to it, an intelligent man who trained in silence, Paul Tournier, a Swedish psychologist who actually wanted to be an evangelist, and his wife said no. So he stuck to his medical practice, but he brought a little of his spirituality to work. And as a psychologist, he says, one of the best things we can do is be quiet. It's best for us to let our patients come to their own discoveries. We don't want to say what they should be figuring out. So we're comfortable with silence. But he had this patient four or five sessions and the guy's not saying anything. They can't get, seem to find out what the problem is, why he's coming to a psychologist. And the physician's getting a little impatient. The patient comes in on this day and says to the doctor, well, tell me about the silence practice, you know, what it is you do when you're silent. And the physician thought, this is just another excuse so he doesn't have to talk about his stuff. But thought, all right, we'll go with it. Instead of describing it to you, why don't we just do it? So he said to the man, well, now sit in silence for 10 minutes. 
And this is your time to be listening to God. And he prayed over the man. He prayed for the two of them. He asked for a consecrated spirit in the room that all of everything would be still and at ease and that they would hear the voice of God. And then they sat. Dr. Tournier says, I don't know if it was two or three minutes. I began to think about my checkbook. My checkbook. I began to think we're having a real financial crisis at home. We're going to have to redo our, our budgeting. I need to talk to my wife when I get home. If we continue on like this, and his mind was going and going and going on personal finances at home. This is the man, by the way, trained in silence, the practice of silence. And then he began to think as the clinician, oh, great, do I have to tell this to my patient when it's sharing time? What's the ethical thing to do? He decided it would be better if he told the patient. And so when the silence was over and it was time to share, he said, well, I must confess to you that while we were being silent, I was thinking about my personal finances and not God. And the patient said, oh, that, thank God, that was it. That's my problem. I have a secret financial checkbook. My wife doesn't know anything about it, and I'm scared to death. I have to tell her about it. That was his whole problem that he hadn't been talking about. Dr. Tournier says, you never know what's going to happen in silence. Are we afraid of it because we're not really sure what to do with it and what the rules are and if we'll succeed or not? Is that why silence is, doesn't seem so golden for us? Many times in our Christian experience, in our life, we don't feel successful with our attempts at doing any of our spiritual disciplines. Like studying the Bible, watch this video clip of this man. the text Jesus wept and he said dear God thanks for weeping went back to sleep and we feel like that sometimes when we think about our own attempts I'd just like to say to you as your friend and as one of your pastors I would rather you attempt 15 minutes of silence each day even if you feel it's not successful, than just about any other spiritual discipline. I would rather you find 15 minutes of solitude because it is so vital to our well-being. It's so necessary for ordering our internal world. 
There are not rules when it comes to silence, by the way. It is about taking steps towards a more quiet life and quiet living. It's about uh, rushing a little bit less, perhaps. At my previous church, the little couple that stood by the front door was always saying to me, slow down, dear, you walk so quick, you make us anxious. Just slow down. Go do what you're going to do, but just do it more slowly. A quiet life. Do we just rush a little less? Do we slow down? Maybe we use less words in our day. It would be interesting for the Adventists to adopt the Quaker practice in meetings. Can you imagine church boards, meetings at the university? In, in a meeting run by Quakers, everyone takes their turn responding to the agenda, but they speak only once. And then they allow for silence after the spoken words so they can really listen to what was said. Maybe we use less words in our day. Maybe we leave the TV and the radio off. Maybe we find just five minutes to reflect on God wherever we can find it in our day. Maybe we'll find an hour each week. And when you decide to take that time, I'd like to invite you to do whatever works for you. Because every personality is different and there are some temperament types that absolutely resist the practice of silence. And by the way, we're probably the ones who need it the most. Because there are different temperament types, because we're all at different places in our spiritual journey, we should do what works for us. Some people prefer to take absolutely nothing into silent time. Some people, like the psychologist I mentioned, enter silent time with a pencil and paper because he find his, finds his mind wanders and he wants to stay more focused so he jots things down. Some people repeat a phrase. They say, be still and know, be still and know. Or they repeat, come, Lord, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Some will intentionally take an issue with them in their mind to quiet time with God, asking and allowing God to bring them insight where that issue is concerned. Some will always do this outdoors. For others, that's very distracting, and they need a space inside where they, they can't see or hear anything else. Some will do this lying down in bed, before they fall asleep, before they wake up in the morning, for the rest of us, we just go to sleep when we try it that way. Whatever works for you, that's all you really need to know. There only needs to be a desire to be still. And the goal eventually is to be at home and comfortable in silence with God. Being prepared... Or, I'm sorry, be prepared. If you choose silence, be prepared for something to grow out of it. Be prepared to see something taking place in your life. We will develop, those of us who try silence, we'll develop a kind of transcendent listening ability. We will hear things other people don't hear. I don't mean crazy things. I mean the voice of God. It's a transcendent listening ability inwardly to our creator and in our world we'll hear things differently if we sit in silence regularly we'll be recentered in our identity every time when we come from a time of silence infused with purpose that is on target for disciples of Jesus we'll rely less on the voices around us in our world the internal voices we play in our own head will carry stillness with us wherever we go wouldn't that be something for Adventist Christians, we'll use less words. Becoming comfortable in a posture of silence.
It's what I invite you to think about this week as your spiritual discipline. When I come home from work in the evenings, the first thing I do is get out of work clothes and I head for something comfortable. In fact, when I came to church early the other morning, Monday morning, the holiday, I came here at 6 a.m. to do some reading. And little Mary Melashenko, who lives across the street, sweet lady, you all know, she spotted me on the sidewalk and she said to me, Oh dear, Pastor Chris, what are you wearing? My comfortable clothes. She said, you look like the daughter of that lady who speaks on Sabbath. (laughs) And that is fair. When I go home, I head to a drawer, my favorite t-shirt drawer. You don't have to like it, but here it is, Clyde Drexler. (laughs) Clyde Drexler. I live in an old dream world. This shirt is that you know how your t-shirts get when they are so worn you can see through them. This one's got a hole right under his elbow where he's going up to lay it in. All around the collar it's ruffled and tattered and fallen apart and it's as soft as soft can be. And when I get home, this is the t-shirt I head for. I'd rather wear this than just about anything else I can find. And if you drop by in the evening... There's a good chance, huh, Kirby? I'd be wearing this. (laughs) That is what it is to be silent with God when there is almost nothing else as comfortable as being alone with the voice of God when it is the thing you head for. Be still. The text says, be still. Amen. Dismiss us in stillness, God. Stillness and quiet. And then we will know. In Jesus' name, amen.